0: Welcome to Surrey Speaks, the University of Surrey's podcast focusing on the groundbreaking research taking place at our institution. This week we're talking about something that we haven't really stopped talking about for the past five years, Brexit. On Thursday 23rd June 2016, the EU referendum took place and the people of the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union. Since then, there has been much debate over what this means for the future of the UK and our relationship with the EU going forward. So we spoke to our resident European and international affairs expert and the head of the Department of Politics, Professor Amelia Hadfield. To start us off, we asked Professor Hadfield for a quick recap on Brexit.
1: So obviously, many of you know, I think in in painstaking detail, what much of Brexit represents. But briefly, uh, it represents the withdrawal of the United Kingdom. From the European Union um, on the uh, 31st of January 2020 Um, and politically what this means is that the UK is the first and so far the only country um, as a member state to have left the European Union. It joined in 1973 what was then the European Communities uh, and 47 years elapsed um, and until the actual point on the 31st of January when it decided to leave. But effectively Prime Minister David Cameron's pro-European government um, holding a referendum on continued EU membership in 2016 was the trigger. Uh, voters at this point chose to leave the European Union uh, with 51.9% of the vote share. Um, and this led to a, a knock-on effect uh, in British politics, not just of his resignation and his replacement by Theresa May, but an enormous upheaval parliamentary on this side of the, of the uh, channel um, and interinstitutional on the other side. Four years of negotiations with the European Union on how to leave, on the terms of departure and the future relations. And it was a very fraught time, as I think you could probably remember, it was a very politically challenging time. It left uh, political wounds, institutional wounds, cultural wounds, very deeply divisive within the UK. And the you know various deals rejected time and again by the British Parliament. Uh, two general elections, 2017 and 2019. Um, and at, at that point, Boris Johnson's government, uh, under Boris Johnson's government, the UK finally leaves the European Union on the 31st of January. So what, what does that mean, uh, in a sense? Uh, it's a very odd sort of deal if we talk about where, where Brexit has arrived um, in, in terms of an agreement between the two sides. it's I'll quote here Pascal Lamy. He's the former World Trade Organization um, head. He says, it's the first negotiation in history where both parties started off with free trade and then discussed what barriers to erect. So I think what's interesting here is the increasingly uh, dichotomous position between the two sides. Um, And over the years, this wasn 't just sort of oppositional, it became really entrenched between the two and really made negotiations that much more difficult and You can see this tension I think uh, in the resulting treaty the european union on on its side wanted tariff free access uh, to the single market uh, and and said you know that this requires everybody to play by the same rules it required a level playing field for both sides so that european standards wouldn't be undercut. Uh, This includes workers' rights, climate change and subsidies. So from the EU perspective, it's AA, more access equals more alignment. The UK, however, uh, for the most part was really determined um, to go against this and to try to break out of the orbit, if you like, of the EU's regulatory system, uh, to build afresh, to build a new uh, British economy um, where there is less, less AA, less access, less alignment um, and and more sovereignty. I think in a sense, um, the idea was if both sides could sort of agree on giving us Canada uh, effectively, which is a free trade ag- agreement uh, without the UK having to accept EU law um, and a, a real sense uh, from the UK side to push back on Brussels from trying to uh, justify demands for ongoing um, alignment. So,
0: what's the latest news on Brexit?
1: So, I'm talking to you now sort of late May uh, 2021. So, this is five months there or more, thereabouts, um, from when Britain has actually left the European Union. And a lot of things have already happened to illustrate that, you know, relations, as they would at the beginning of anything so disruptive and new, remain, for the most part, quite strained. I think we can group them into a couple of categories. Um, Regulation over goods has caused I think um, areas of tension. How you regulate the border in particular um, managing not just customs on goods but, uh, but actually um, just just the dynamics of mobility if, if you like and this has really come to the fore in Ireland. Um, treatment of, of workers and citizens Um, I think is also an issue Um, and also fishing rights and access. Um, So areas I think that you have probably seen cropping up in the news um, include all of these. Um, So you will probably be familiar, therefore, Um, with issues to do with um, the EU and the UK still discussing um, citizens rights um, after a variety of issues over alleged mistreatment, questions as to whether European Union citizens are allowed to come to Britain for a job interview um, as the borders relax as a result of COVID uh, impacts. So there's some issues where COVID and Brexit together. Uh, have um, you know provided something uh, of, a, of a perfect storm, which is very very difficult to to manage in that respect on Northern Ireland, which remains a very difficult area, the British government of late have has said have stated that it hopes that the European Union uh, won 't take retaliatory measures. Uh, if Britain chooses uh, to unilaterally suspend the special Brexit arrangements for, for Northern Ireland. Um, so both sides, I think, are, are finding it difficult to come to uh, an arrangement on something that's effectively already in law.
0: Now, I'm sure a lot of people would like to ask this. When will Brexit no longer be a key talking point in British politics? Uh, what What
1: are the options facing, um, facing the United Kingdom um, at this point? Um, certainly, from foreign policy perspective, Brexit has damaged Uh, the UK's reputation, at least in the short term, for domestic stability um, and for being a pragmatic international uh, manager, if you like, abroad. Um, Britain's had a very good reputation, uh, mainly as a multilateralist, as a globally networked power. Uh, It's been very good in constructing and championing the international rules-based system, supporting things like transatlantic security and European integration And, and Brexit. Uh, in a sense represents a a massive change, if not indeed a rejection of a key component of some of these, including multilateralism, but but also European integration. Um, And I think if you take that and you combine it Um, with the ongoing domestic upheaval that we're seeing in Britain in terms of finance and economy and business and the negotiations over fishing rights um, and also Northern Ireland, I think this is going to continue a trend that actually predates the referendum. So Brexit as a political issue, as an economic um, challenge um, and as an opportunity to reconnect with the European Union is is going to be around for for some time. Um, That's bad news if it means that relations remain strained uh, it's good news if it sort of um, pushes Britain to reconsider its role with Europe and possibly reconsider its role abroad um, and I think some some degree of change has happened I think my suggestion is um, that Britain now needs to think again it needs to pursue much more activist international foreign policy it needs to really be a staunch advocate um, of multilateralism um, supporting its work in the UN Security Council uh, leading on things like the d10 the so-called green uh, Group of leading democratic states to challenge authoritarian powers as well. Um, in defense, I think Britain has already, and we've seen this in the Integrated Defense Review, r- pushed very hard to increase defense spending uh, by an additional 16.5 billion pounds over four years, which is huge. This is the largest boost since the end of the Cold War. Um, but at the same time, those increases come at a cost. They can't hide you know, the major reductions in manpower and capabilities that have happened over the last two decades. Um, And finally, I think in terms of of diplomacy, Britain's going to have to work hard. It's faced severe budgetary constraints uh, in its diplomatic service, um, and it needs to rework, it needs to rebuild relations um, with obviously the the European Union, and I'll come to that in a minute, but also the United States, um, and particularly um, Australia, Canada and New Zealand, um, particularly its sort of Five Eyes partners. So Britain, global Britain, which is the sort of um, tagline that has emerged in the last year and a half, uh, can mean a number of things. it, whatever it means, it's certainly going to necessitate considerable uh, oomph, considerable additional resources, um, and it needs to place, I think, multilateralism and diplomacy at the heart of it.
0: What do you think the UK's relationship with the EU will look like in the future? I think what is potential
1: um, are the opportunities for the UK to see where Europe, as a regional actor, is going to reach out and, and suggest, perhaps, on specific security and defense operations, that it also has a a role to play. Um, Europe is steamrolling ahead uh, in in terms of its security integration and its defense integration, or certainly was up until COVID. Uh, Whether it was doing this uh, in direct reaction to to Brexit um, or as a sort of internal uh, catalyst to sort of demonstrate that integration was alive and well, um, I think perhaps it's a little bit of both. But certainly I think as the EU continues to push ahead, Um, in being an actor and being a regional actor and even a global actor. There's lots of opportunity for it to continue to work with the UK. So that that should be good. Um, a couple of areas, for example, where the EU has very real responsibilities um, in regional cooperation and international cooperation. Uh, for example, might be regulatory diplomacy. Um, it's it sounds maybe slightly boring, but it's the it's whoever makes the rules in international structures that you know tend to benefit from them. So if you if the EU and the UK together perhaps can focus. On the procedural side of things, the rules-based structures um, that are very much, you know, the fabric of complex multi-level regimes, then both sides, I think, have an opportunity to to expand their own global role and expand them together. Both sides are, you know, they cyber powers, they're normative powers, they're development powers, they're, they're human rights powers as well. Um, so I think it's only natural that that they should come together.
0: Do you think the EU will still exist in its current form in 10 years time? Yes, I do. Um, I, I think there's too much to
1: play for. It's too hard at this point to um, fundamentally unpick something um, as um, substantive and now really quite, quite historic. Um, as as the series of interlocking institutions and member states that is the European Union. However, I think if it doesn't take seriously the need to shift um, and reform in key areas, it's going to find itself at odds with its own member states in terms of its integrationist philosophy, um, and at odds with um, external actors like the United Kingdom that it needs to retain as, as key allies. Um, I also think the EU tries to do too much. The a number of policies and the attempted power over those policies, the competences, is simply staggering. Um, and it they may have, I think, perhaps bitten off more than they can chew. It's You, you cannot do everything at once. And I think that penny has, has dropped. We also spoke to Professor
0: Holger Breinlich from our School of Economics to find out about the economic effects of Brexit so far and what the UK can expect for the future.
2: There really uh, I think is a consensus that the uh, referendum outcome hasn't had much impact on uh, on unemployment. So uh, in the two years following 2016 uh, UK unemployment um, was continued, basically its downward trend from before the referendum, similarly to other countries in the Euro area or, say, the United States. So there doesn't seem to have been much of an effect of the Brexit referendum on unemployment. Uh, however, uh, when we look at investment, uh, so the news are less good. So there has been a quite a dramatic slowdown in domestic investment uh, starting in 2017 uh, as well as in uh, for inward foreign direct investment, so foreigners investing in the UK. So both domestic and uh, inward foreign direct investments seem to have declined since the referendum, and researchers have linked that decline to the referendum itself. So it seems that since the referendum, the UK has become a less attractive place to invest in one of the consequences that has had, and that's another variable that's been studied quite extensively, is the effect the referendum has had on UK GDP. And here the consensus is by and large that the referendum has had a negative impact. Um, so I think one of the most reliable studies has found that uh, by the last quarter of 2018, UK GDP was roughly 2.5% lower than what it would have been had Remain 1%. And expressing this in pounds, this uh, amounts to a loss of something like 55 uh, billion pounds um, uh, as measured at the end of 2018. So in terms of GDP, uh, clearly the uh, decline in investment has has shown up. uh, And there's also been a, a slightly less severe decline in consumption, which then added up to the loss in GDP that we observe.
0: Well, that's it for this episode. If you'd like to find out more about the research we're doing around Brexit, please visit www.surrey.ac.uk and search for our Centre for Britain and Europe webpage. Until next time.